If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. The book of Philippians. We come this morning to the beginning of its third chapter. And follow with me, please, as I read aloud the opening three verses of Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The phrase buyer beware has become somewhat proverbial in America. Uh, it comes from a, a Latin statement that initially made its way west and was used in the realm of, of real estate. Uh, urging uh, buyers that they had responsibility for certain things and they needed to beware of entering into a real estate deal without a proper uh, alertness uh, to certain uh, liabilities. The phrase has come to be used more generally and more broadly uh, as a warning against the danger of being duped. Uh, There are an immense amount of dollars spent on marketing in America and not all marketing employees are trustworthy. Uh, Not everything is what it appears to be. Uh, Not everything is as valuable as uh, a given marketeer would lead you to believe. And the phrase has become somewhat proverbial, buyer beware, think before you put your dollars down. Use discernment. More than a few buyers, more than a few investors have made decisions that proved disastrous. Well, what's true in the realm of the material is also true in the realm of the spiritual. People can be misled. People can make disastrous decisions concerning what they come to believe. And that would also be true concerning what they may come to stop believing. In the verses before us this morning, some of the strongest, some of the severest language to be found in the New Testament, is is used uh, warning the people of Christ against the danger of false teachers, men who were marketing uh, ideas that were deadly, that had eternal consequences to them. In contrast uh, to these false teachers, uh, the apostle in the verses before us sets forth the distinguishing marks of the true people of Christ, and by way of inference, uh, the marks of the true teachers of Christ. The passage begins, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And Paul there is returning to a theme that he's already uh, made prominent uh, in this epistle, and he'll continue to make prominent. Uh, It has been called the epistle of joy. Uh, So often is there found references to rejoicing. And the passage begins on that note, finally, My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. We'll come back to that at the close of the message. 
because its meaning in this immediate context is colored by what follows in the latter half of verse 1 and in verses 2 and 3. The word finally might be better rendered as now to go on. Uh, Now to go on, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And the reference here to writing the same things may indicate that he had written previously to the church of Philippi. It's possible that more than one epistle had been sent uh, to this dear church in times past. We know from the New Testament that not everything that the apostles said, of course, not everything that the Lord Jesus said, uh, found its way into the inspired canon of Scripture. Jesus said more than what we have given to us in the Bible, and the same is true of the apostles' teaching. We know that there are letters, such as to the church in Corinth, that were written, and that were written with the authority of the apostle, but they did not become part of of the New Testament canon. So when Paul says here, to write these same things again, he may be now addressing things that he had written about previously to them uh, in a letter that we're not uh, in possession of. On the other hand, he may be referring to things that he had talked to them about when he was there in person. The church had been established under his preaching of the gospel, and he had taught the first believers there in Philippi for a brief period, very brief period of time, and he may now be writing the same things, some of the same things that he had sounded verbally in their ears when he was among them. What is clear is that the apostle is now returning to a subject that he had previously mentioned, and he does so convinced that it's necessary for the safety of the saints in Philippi. And that's going to sound the note that's going to color deeply what he says here, not just at the beginning of verse 3, but throughout the entire chapter 3. He is concerned about the influence of false teaching. He is concerned about the safety of the brothers and sisters in Philippi. I ask that you consider with me uh, three points this morning as we look at these three verses. An emphatic warning, the marks of the true people of God, and then finally, the primary application. We'll spend most of our time on the first, an emphatic warning. Paul says in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The words are almost violent in their emotional tone. The intensity of the apostle's concern comes to expression by way of the repetition that he uses. Not once, not twice, but three times. He insists, be on the alert, watch out, look out for. Again, the depth of the apostle's burden is conveyed not only by repetition, but by the severity of the language that he uses. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Now for you children who are here in the sanctuary this morning, I fully anticipate that you've been taught at home the way I was taught growing up, that you ought not to use names. Uh, I grew up in a home where my mom had a keen sense of what was polite 
And uh, any expressions that y'all found in me of a lack of politeness, and they're there, they are not due to my mother, because she labored to instill in her young Stuart a sense of what was proper speech, what was kind, and what was, what was right. And one of the rules was you don't call people names. And uh, I trust that many of your children have been taught that words like loser or liar or tattletale, those are, those are words that ought not to be used at home. Generally, they are not polite, and generally they're not righteous when we use names to draw attention uh, to something that has irked us. There is a place, however, for calling people names. Now, Paul was not here being rude. Uh, Paul was not here being unrighteous. Rather, he was led of the Spirit to choose designations that would best emphasize and describe the deadly danger that he here is warning against things that he saw as very real threats to the safety of the saints in the church at Philippi. Now, what is he emphatically warning against? And really, it's not so much a what in some ways as it is a who, but the the two are, are tied together. He's warning against false teachers, not just false ideas, but the concern with the people who were pronouncing these ideas was the ideas that they, in fact, were conveying and emphasizing in a very persuasive way. Paul does not here identify these false teachers by name. We don't know with absolute certainty uh, the party of men that he had in mind, but we can come pretty close to deep certainty because of the way in which he describes these false teachers and calling them the dogs, the evildoers, and in particular, by using the phrase, those who mutilate the flesh, by which we recognize that he's making reference to the religious ritual of circumcision, a ritual that was so important uh, in the Old Testament uh, age. It was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his people. It was a crucial sign. Uh, Those who refused to be circumcised, were viewed as breakers of God's covenant. And that reference in particular helps us to identify who uh, the Apostle Paul was speaking of. He uses the phrase, the dogs. This is one of those areas in our study of the Bible where we recognize that in terms of interpreting the Bible, it's important to recognize that there's been a vast gap of time between today and the age in which the Bible was written, and there are great differences in the cultures of modern-day America and ancient uh, Near East. Dogs would be an illustration of that. When we think dogs, we think lassie. Uh, We think uh, cute, adorable, uh, animals that many of us cherish, that we uh, view as members of the family, that we care for, often at significant expense. Back then, in the Near East, in ancient times, dogs were scavenger animals. They were wild. They often roamed in packs. They were repulsive. They were dangerous. The Old Testament uh, speaks by way of prophecy, and then we read in the Old Testament history of the prophecy coming to pass of the wicked Queen Jezebel, 
uh, when, when she died. Uh, orders would, were given to, to pick up the corpse and to bury it, but it was too late. Dogs had consumed her, her dead body. And that had been prophesied that it would happen in connection with the, the heinous evil of, of that woman. Uh, but you, you picture that scene uh, of, of a body in the streets and, and a pack of dogs just aggressively going after the body, uh, devouring it in such a way that all that's left are uh, some hand bones and some, some feet bones. It's, it's not a picture of Lassie, is it? Well, the apostle has in mind these, these wild scavenger dogs, uh, these repulsive animals, these dangerous animals, in using this uh, designation to warn the people of God uh, against these to whom he's referring. Jews in New Testament times uh, referred to Gentiles as dogs, and the idea was that they were unclean. Uh, They were ritually unclean. They were outside of the people of God. And we should note that the Bible itself uses the term dogs in just that same way. Interestingly, as the Bible comes to a close, in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, uh, we find in verse 15, uh, the Bible using the word dog in this same way. Revelation 22 says, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And obviously the reference there in the word dogs is not to canines, it's to people. It's just spiritually, morally unclean people. People who have not had their robes washed in the blood and therefore they don't have access to come into the holy city. They are outside the walls of the new heaven. It's a way of describing those who are outside of God's people, outside of the covenant community. Paul uses the term in a similar way, and his use of the term is full of irony because he's speaking of men who prided themselves on being the true members of God's church and would look upon others, in particular Gentiles who had not been circumcised as yet being unclean, as yet being outside of the camp of God's people, as those who did not belong, as those who were like the dogs. And Paul says, no, it's these teachers who are the dogs. It's these teachers who are the unclean ones in the sight of God. It is these false teachers who are those that are outside of the people of God. They do not belong to the covenant community. What gave rise to such a severe denunciation? Verse 2 continues, watch out for the evildoers. And one of the first rules of interpretation is to consider the context and the warning against the evildoers is, of course, immediately followed by the warning against those who mutilate the flesh. And given the rest of chapter 3 and the larger context of the New Testament, In particular, the book of Galatians, Acts 15, Paul seems to have had in mind a group of influential religious teachers who were uh, infecting the early church with a, a noxious, deadly teaching that it was not enough to believe in Jesus. They weren't denying Jesus. They weren't denying the cross of Jesus. 
They weren't denying faith in Jesus. But they were insisting that it was not enough to believe in a crucified Savior. For those who were Gentiles, they needed also to become Jews. They needed to submit to the Jewish ceremonial law, and in particular, where their teaching came to a head was they needed to be circumcised. Again, that was the mark of the covenant throughout the Old Testament age. It was the defining feature outwardly of those who belonged to the people of God. They had to submit to circumcision, and that indeed was not an option throughout the Old Testament age. It was a requirement that God laid upon his people. Well, these men, whom Paul is referring to, were spreading the message that, yes, believe in Jesus. Yes, the Savior has come. But to enter into the benefits of his atoning work, you must not only believe, you must also submit to the ritual of circumcision. Acts 15, verse 1, makes this clear, identifying this group as some men from Judea that were teaching the brothers, that is the church. They had left Judea and come up into Antioch on the northeastern shore of the Mediterranean. And they had come up there and they were teaching the brothers this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that is the essential message of the group that is often referred to as the Judaizers. The Judaizers, men from Judea, who insisted, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, according to the Old Testament ceremonial law, you cannot be saved. Now, the epistle to the Galatians was written with its major burden being to address uh, this controversy, this error, and Acts 15 makes clear that the apostles and the church in Jerusalem rejected this teaching emphatically as not being the, the teaching of Christ. Nevertheless, it's clear from the New Testament that the teaching gained momentum and had uh, no small degree of influence. Many of us are familiar with, with kudzu uh, here in the South, and you, you go along certain uh, roadways, and, and you look to the side, and, and the woods are just covered up with this, with this ivy, it is just completely taken over uh, all of the woods. And kudzu is a very aggressive um, plant that, that grows, and by, by covering uh, trees and bushes and plants, it, it, it smothers them, uh, taking away their ability to be exposed to the sunlight without which uh, they can't live. And, uh, and it's, it's invasive, and, it, and it's powerful in its influence. Well, the Judaizers were, were kind of like a, a spiritual kudzu that were just perniciously and, and widely uh, going in and threatened to take over certain gardens of young Christians who were yet new and vulnerable in the faith. Again, the last phrase in verse 2, look out for those that mutilate the flesh, confirms that Paul had in mind these these false teachers. As I've said, circumcision was uh, a biblical uh, mandate for the old covenant people of God. They were, they were talking about something that had biblical roots. They were talking about something that, yes, for centuries had not been a suggestion, an option. It was crucial 
According to Genesis 17, verse 14, to refuse to be circumcised was to break covenant with God, but they were presenting it as something that was necessary to salvation. You cannot reach heaven unless you submit to this ritual. And in fact, the Old Testament itself recognized again and again that the ritual of circumcision, though in its place significant and necessary, was by no means ultimately necessary to salvation because even the Old Testament recognized that the significance of the outward ritual act was how it pointed to something internal, something done in the spirit. Let me give you just one example uh, of numerous texts. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. Speaking of repentance and forgiveness, Israel was told, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And those words uh, underscore that it has always been true in Old Testament times as well as in New that it is the circumcision of one's heart That is, the granting of a repentant attitude, the granting of faith in the promise of God's salvation. It is that inner circumcision. It is that work upon the Spirit that brings the eternal life which God promised in the Messiah. When our doing a certain ritual, our performing a certain work, is presented as necessary to salvation. The message of the Bible, of God's salvation, is corrupted because it destroys the Bible's concept of grace. Let me say that again. When our doing a given ritual, the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament circumcision would be baptism. When when, when our doing, as we'll do tonight, God willing, uh, we'll witness uh, the New Testament ritual of baptism. When our doing a certain ritual or performing certain works is presented as necessary to salvation, the message of God's grace is corrupted with the leaven of legalism. The teaching that we must do certain things if we would be saved. That is not the Bible's message of salvation. That's what is called legalism. Legalism draws attention to the law, i.e. what God requires, what God expects, as the means through which salvation is received. You do certain things, you don't do certain other things, you make it to heaven. You avoid this, but you do that, And you can have peace with God. That's that's the essence of legalism. Taking God's law, this is God's God's message, God's law in which he conveys what he expects, and saying our compliance is the key to being forgiven of your sins. Now that law which is from God, in fact, was never given 
to rescue us from sin. It was given to expose our sin. It's not the only thing that the law does. The law does show us the pathway of of loving God. It does define for us uh, ways in which we can express uh, a life concerned to honor God. Uh, Love in itself is blind, and we need the law to define the pathway uh, whereby we know our duty before God, and we do have duty before God. But the law was given that through it people might come to a knowledge of their sin in them to the the salvation that can only be found outside of ourselves. When the law says, you shall not commit adultery. Well, yes, it is telling us that God is concerned that we walk in a path of sexual purity. But the idea is not that if you keep your nose clean enough, In the area of sex, I'll forgive your sins. No, the message is, by nature, we're given to adultery. And we're given to lying. And we're given to irreverence. And we're given to stealing. And that's why we need a salvation that cannot possibly come through our keeping the law well enough. It must come from outside of ourselves. The salvation of the Bible is entirely Christ's doing. He alone lived a life that was always perfectly pleasing to God. There is only one person who's ever walked on this planet who always fulfilled the do's and don'ts of God's law. And that was Jesus. And he did it perfectly every day of his life. He alone addressed the punishment we all deserve, dying in the place of his people and suffering the wrath that our trespasses deserve. He alone conquered the devil and death, rising from the grave in his resurrection. He alone is the mediator. Salvation is his doing. And the only thing that moved God to accomplish salvation in Christ and his doing was God's grace. God showing favor to to people who don't deserve in the least his kindness. God extending kindness where kindness was not merited. And that gracious salvation in Christ is received by faith alone. A faith that, yes, is our psychological act. God does not believe for us. You must believe. I must believe. But that faith is, is, a, is a disposition that that looks at what Christ has done, receives what Christ has done, relies on what Christ has done, depends on what Christ has done. Faith is not fundamentally something that we do. Faith fundamentally is something that recognizes what Christ has done and embraces that. And even the ability to have a a penitent faith is itself the gift of God that he gives to his chosen ones. Well, having given this emphatic warning, the apostle briefly identifies the marks of the true people of God. Writing to the Philippians, he says, we are the circumcision. These guys who so emphasize circumcision, they they in fact are just mutilators. They're, They're like pagan priests who superstitiously think 
that, that you can get the attention of heaven by cutting yourself. Uh, he doesn't even call what's happened to them or what they're teaching circumcision. He, he calls them mutilators. They're, they're not healers. They're not physicians of the soul. They are destructive ones. He says, we are the circumcision. And here, the apostle does not have in mind the, the physical act of circumcision, the cutting of the flesh. He doesn't have in mind the religious ritual. When he says, we are the circumcision, he's affirming that he and the saints in Philippi were the, the true people of God. Those that had been brought into a covenant relationship with the Lord. And he says that the true covenant community is distinguished by three defining non-negotiable traits. And given what I've already said uh, concerning the false teachers, we can be very brief here. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. The Old Testament era was one of shadows marked by a relative emphasis on the outward and on the physical, ritual, and ceremony, a given geographical location for worship. That epoch has passed. The true people of Christ are those who have been brought into fellowship with God's people through the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. As God vowed, He has put His Spirit inside of His people, removing their hearts of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, i.e. a tenderness towards God, a receptivity towards God, a humility before God, a willingness to submit to God. The Spirit has come and has changed hearts, and through His presence, and through His ministry, and through His fruit, the whole of the believer's life has become one of worship. The whole of life in every realm, it's not just what we do in this hour and a half when we gather on Sunday morning and when we gather at other times. It's not just them, but the whole of life in every realm, at work, at home, uh, with friends, with the neighbors, and yes, with the church, the whole of life becomes a, a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice, an offering up of ourselves to God, who is uh, the one that we make much of, that we worship. We are the circumcision, Paul says, who glory in Christ Jesus. As has been uh, emphasized, we can do nothing to save ourselves. Our sin goes too deep. You and I, natively, are, are like the, the leprous house of the Old Testament. It can't, it can't just be sanitized. The thing has to be burned down. We need a whole new start. We need a whole new record before God. And that's what He has provided in, in Jesus Christ. And the true church is made up of those people who exult in Jesus. They boast in Jesus Christ. They honestly confess their trespasses, their sins, but they affirm the sinlessness of their Savior. They affirm that He is everything we are not. They affirm that precisely at those areas where I have fallen short, He did not fall short. They affirm that in those areas where I fall short and cross over the line and go out of bounds and sin 
and violate the will of God. His death took those specific transgressions, placed them on his own shoulders, and he faced the abandonment of a holy God and the wrath of a holy father so that justice in heaven would be satisfied concerning those violations that you and I have actually committed. We glory in that if we're Christians. We glory in the truth that Jesus paid it all. And in our foulest moments, we don't glibly say, well, I trust in Jesus. But we find relief and we find consolation and we find deliverance in knowing that Jesus never thought like I think. And Jesus never spoke like I speak. And Jesus never did what I did. And Jesus, knowing how I think at times, and knowing how I speak at times, and knowing what I do at times, Jesus took those very transgressions upon himself, and he went to the cross with them. And divine justice was satisfied. To add circumcision, to add baptism, or any other work to what Christ has done, in effect, destroys what Christ has done. Because it destroys what is at the heart of the work and person of Christ, and that is that he is totally sufficient for everything that sinners like me and you need. Imagine two people getting married. And on the threshold of their wedding day, um, the man turns to his bride and says, Honey, I am so excited about our getting married and giving my life to you, but I'd like to have one day out of the year where I could be with another woman. 365 days, we're just talking one. My, my, my money will go to you. My time, my heart will go to you. I mean, we're not talking 25%. We're not talking 10%. We're not talking 5%. We're talking just one day out of 365. I just want a one-day break where I can be with another woman. Deal? How do you think his bride would respond to that? It would crush the essence of what marriage is. It doesn't matter that it's one out of 365. The essence of marriage is a promise to cherish one forsaking every other. Right? Till death parts us. Anything less than that strikes at the very root of what marriage is. To say... Believe in Christ. But if you're not baptized, there's a big question mark as to whether you'll make it into heaven. It destroys the essence of the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ, which is He did it all. His life, His death, His resurrection are entirely sufficient. You distort that, you dilute that, you add to that, you lose that.
We are the circumcision who put no confidence in the flesh. We do not rely upon our good Reformed Baptist background. We don't rely upon our ability to answer the catechism questions because we've been taught well. We don't rely upon the fact that we've, we've always been the compliant one in the family. Now, my brother, well, I can tell you stories about him, but I, I like to do what mommy and daddy asked me to do. And all my life, I've, I've been a compliant, rule-keeping person. We don't rely on anything related to our performance. How religious we've been, how moral we've been, how superior we think we have been to many of those around us. We haven't done what they've done. We put no confidence in the flesh. Again, we glory in Christ Jesus. We exalt in Him. Well, Paul's application primarily is not, okay, so get this right and be orthodox. Paul's primary application is rejoice in the Lord. Paul is not interested in just theorizing about false doctrine and the true, and we just want to be those who, we've got our check marks in the right places, and we know the difference between orthodoxy and heteroorthodoxy. Now, Paul's concern was for the relationship of the Philippians to Jesus, in particular, that the reality of what he alone had accomplished for them would be a fountain of gladness in their souls. He's talked about joy before, but this is the first time in the letter that he makes it clear. I'm appealing to you for a joy that is in the Lord. He's going to say it again and later in the epistle. This is the first time that he states that explicitly. I am calling you to a joy that is in the Lord. A joy that comes from Jesus. A joy that has as its focus Jesus. A joy that has as its end Jesus. A joy that is founded fundamentally on the fact that Jesus did it all and therefore I'm forgiven. And I've been received and I've been brought into the family and I'm on my way to heaven. And Paul is saying in these verses, and he'll continue this theme throughout the chapter, that you need to protect that joy because it's vulnerable. And in this context, he's saying it's vulnerable to being impaired and even practically extinguished if you lose sight of the fact that the boast of the people of God is in Christ alone. Watch out for anything, anything that would take you away from Christ alone. Christianity provides for a joy that can survive 
fierce persecution. Christianity provides for a joy that is not fundamentally dependent on how is my day going, how is my week going, what is work like, what are my investments like, what's the political scene like. Christianity provides for a joy that transcends earthly circumstances. Isn't it hard for us to really get that? Don't we find ourselves exposed again and again and again to how much our joy tends to be tied to earthly things? And something gets taken away or a shadow comes over some circumstance of life and our joy plummets. Do we not also find that, that our failures, while they, while they rightly should bring an element of grieving before the Lord, that's part of repenting and part of turning back unto the Lord, but do we not find, some of us, that, that our failures unduly cloud our attitude as if our joy is really more fundamentally dependent on how we're doing and how we perceive ourselves to be doing and that when we feel like we're doing well, then great, we can be happy. And when we feel that we're just blowing it, then, then happiness is, is something that is entirely elusive. I'm not saying that, that it's normal, healthy Christianity to be thrilled in the midst of failure. But Christian joy is not founded fundamentally on how well you and I are doing. Can you you see that distinction? Yes, we grieve over sin, but it doesn't mean that Jesus says, you work on getting your act together, come back to me next week and we'll talk as to whether I'll allow you to smile again. Jesus' love never changes. His posture is always one. Come to me. I'll accept you right now. I'll forgive you right now. I love you as much as when you were doing great. Your salvation is based on my performance, not your own. Are we getting that? Are we growing in our sense of that? Are we we learning to rejoice in a way That if the elections don't go the way that we hope, yes, there will be a place of of grieving. But there will be a joy that is sustained. Because by the grace of God, I know Jesus. And if I'm in prison, that's okay. And if the word comes back that my neck is going to be severed by a Roman sword... That's okay too. I know Jesus. And I'm going to Jesus. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's not a problem for me to say these things to you again. And it's for your safety. Because y'all, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We can't afford to do without the joy of the Lord. It's debilitating. 
It leaves us unnecessarily vulnerable. I began the sermon talking about buyer beware. The prophet Isaiah appealed to a nation that had gone wrong deeply. And in God's name, he said, you come and buy in God's store without money, without price. Why do you give yourselves to things that will not satisfy? You can know God and have a relationship with Him. And you say, I, I, can't, I can't come up with, with what it takes to deserve that. You're right. But without money, you come and you buy. And you'll find in the Lord God who has revealed Himself supremely in Jesus Christ that he'll take you just as you are. You repent, i.e. turn to God. Turn away from your own way. Turn to God in faith, relying on what Jesus is and has done. And you go to God in Christ and say, Receive me and forgive me and grant me your spirit that, that I might be able to follow after you in gratitude and in trust and with affection. There's never a person who's lived on this planet to whom Jesus said, no, I won't do that. He'll receive you if you'll come to Him. Honestly, humbly, relying on nothing you've done. Relying on entirely what He has done. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to ponder these things. And we pray for grace to see Jesus by faith and to glory in him. And to learn more of what it is to entirely rely on him. And to learn more of what it is to to find a tremendous sense of safety being in Christ, and yes, a a thriving sense of joy that we have been brought to know Jesus. Oh God, we would be a church that stands out for our rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those among us who have never really come to that well, we pray, oh God, that today would be the day that they would come and drink of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his sweet name. Amen.